Auld Lang Syne. I find it fascinating that in a world where so much is new, we welcome a new year by singing Auld Lang Syne, which is a very old song. The chorus starts out, For Auld Lang Syne, my is a Scots word that can straightforwardly be translated to deer, but Auld Lang Syne is more complicated. It literally means something like old long since, but it's idiomatically akin to the old times. We have a phrase in English somewhat similar to for Auld Lang Syne, for old time's sake. Here's a bit from my old long since. In the summer of 2001, the writer Amy Krauss Rosenthal emailed Booklist magazine to inquire about a review. At the time, I was working for Booklist as a publishing assistant. Most of my job was data entry, but I also answered many of the low priority emails that came in. I responded to Amy with an update on the status of the review. But I also mentioned that, on a personal note, I loved her zine-like column in Might magazine. I told her I often thought about one snippet she'd written which went, Every time I'm flying and the captain announces the beginning of our descent, the same thing goes through my mind. While we're still pretty high above the city, I'll think, if the plane went down now, we would definitely not be okay. A bit lower, and no, we still wouldn't be okay. But as we get real close to the ground, I'll relax. Okay, we're low enough. If it crashed now, we might be okay. She wrote me back the next day and asked if I was a writer. I said I was trying to be, and she asked if I had anything that was two minutes long that might work on the radio. We don't really know when Old Lang Syne was written. The first verse goes, Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old Lang Syne? Versions of those lyrics date back at least 400 years, but we owe the current song to the great Scottish poet Robert Burns. In December of 1788, he wrote to his friend Francis Dunlop, Is not a Scotch phrase, Old Lang Syne, exceedingly expressive? There is an old song and tune which has often thrilled through my soul. Light on the turf on the breast of the heaven-inspired poet, who composed this glorious fragment. On the back of the letter, Burns wrote a draft of the poem. At least three of the verses were probably his own, although he would later say of the song that he took it down from an old man. Part of what makes dating the first verse difficult is the poem's eternality. It's about drinking together and remembering old times and 
almost every idea in the song, from picking daisies to wandering through the fields to toasting friends over a beer, could have been written 500, 1,000, or even 3,000 years ago. It is also, incidentally, a rousing ode to splitting the check, with a part of the second verse going. And surely you'll buy your pint cup, and surely I'll buy mine. But mostly, the song is just an unapologetic celebration of the good old days. I guess I should tell you that Amy is dead, otherwise her death within this review might seem like some kind of narrative device, which I don't want. So, okay, she is dead. The rare present tense sentence that, once it becomes true, stays true forever. But we are not there yet. We're still on the past, I think. Amy asked if I had anything for the radio, and I sent in three mini-essays. And she liked one of them, asked me to come in and record it for her show on Chicago's public radio station, WBEZ. After that, Amy invited me to be on her show more often. Within a year, I was recording frequent commentaries for WBEZ, and then for NPR's All Things Considered. In April of 2002, Amy convened some of her writer and musician friends for an event at the Chopin Theatre in Chicago called Writer's Block Party. And she asked me to read for it, and I did. And people laughed at my dumb jokes. Amy hired someone to walk around the theatre, giving everyone compliments, and the complimenter said they liked my shoes, which were new Adidas sneakers, and that's why I've worn Adidas sneakers nearly every day for the last 19 years. Robert Burns originally had a different tune in mind for Old Lang Syne than the one most of us know, although he himself realised that the melody was mediocre, you'll sometimes still hear that original arrangement. It is used an example in the 2008 film Sex and the City. The tune most associated with Auld Lang Syne first appeared in 1799 in George Thompson's A Select Collection of Original Scottish Airs for the Voice. By then, Robert Burns was gone. He was only 37 when he died of a heart condition possibly exacerbated by his habit of raising many a pint glass to old acquaintances. In his last letter, he wrote to his friend, Francis Dunlop. An illness which has long hung about me, in all probability, will speedily send me beyond that boring whence no traveller returns. Even on his deathbed, Burns could turn a phrase. Within a few decades of Burns' death, Auld Lang Syne had become a popular part of New Year's Eve celebrations in Scotland, a holiday known as Hogmanay that can trace its history back to winter solstice rituals. By 1818, Beethoven had written an arrangement of the song, and it was beginning to travel throughout the world. Between 1945 and 1948, the tune was used in South Korea's national anthem, in the Netherlands, its melody inspired one of the country's most famous football chants. Old Lang Syne is often played at Japanese department stores just before they close to let the customers know. It's time to leave. The song is also a staple of film soundtracks, 
from Charlie Chaplin's Gold Rush in 1925 to It's a Wonderful Life in 1946 to Minions in 2015. I think Old Lang Syne is popular in Hollywood not just because it's in the popular domain and therefore cheap, but also because it's the rare song that is genuinely wistful. It acknowledges human longing without romanticizing it and it captures how each new year is a product of all the old ones. When I sing Old Lang Syne on a New Year's Eve, I forget the words like most of us do, until I get to the fourth verse, which I do have memorized. We do have paddled in the stream from morning sun till dying. But seas between us broad have wrought since old Langsine. And I think about the many broad seas that have wrought between me and the past. Seas of neglect, seas of time, seas of death. I'll never again speak to many of the people who loved me into this moment just as you will never speak to many of the people who loved you into your now. So we raise a glass to them and hope that perhaps somewhere they're raising a glass to us. In 2005, Amy published a memoir in the form of an encyclopedia called Encyclopedia of an Ordinary Life. That book ends. I was here, you see. I was. Another sentence that, once it becomes true, never stops being true. Her encyclopedia came out just a few months before my first novel, Looking for Alaska. Soon thereafter, Sarah got into graduate school in Columbia, so we moved to New York. Amy and I stayed in touch and occasionally collaborated over the next decade. I paid a bit part in an experience she curated for hundreds of people on August 8th, 2008 in Chicago's Millennium Park. But it was never again like it had been in those early days. In her strange and beautiful interactive memoir, textbook Amy Krauss Rosenthal, published in 2016, she wrote, if one is generously contracted 80 years, that amounts to 29,220 days on Earth. Playing that out, how many times then, really, do I get to look at a tree? 12,395? There has to be an exact number. Let's just say it's 12,395. Absolutely, that is a lot, but it is not infinite. And anything less than infinite seems too measly a number, and that is not satisfactory. In her writing, Amy often sought to reconcile the infinite nature of consciousness and love and yearning with the finite nature of the universe and all that inhabits it. Towards the end of textbook, she wrote a multiple choice question. In the alley, there is a bright pink flower peeking out through the asphalt. A. It looks like futility. B. It looks like hope. For me, at least, 
Old Lang Syne captures exactly what it feels like to see a bright pink flower peeking out through the asphalt. And how it feels to know you have 12,395 times to look at a tree. Amy found out she had cancer not long after finishing textbook, and she called me. She knew that in the years after my book, The Fault in Our Stars, was published, I'd come to know many young people who were gravely ill. She wanted to know if I had advice for her. I told her what I think is true, that love survives death. But she wanted to know how young people react to death, how her kids would. She wanted to know if her kids and husband would be okay, and that ripped me up. Although I'm usually quite comfortable talking with sick people, with my friend I found myself stumbling over words, overwhelmed by my own sadness and worry. They won't be okay, of course, but they will go on, and the love that you poured into them will go on. That's what I should have said, but what I actually said while crying was, how can this be happening? You do so much yoga. In my experience, dying people often have wonderful stories of horrible things healthy people say to them, but I've never heard anybody say something as stupid as, you do so much yoga. I hope that Amy at least got some narrative mileage out of it, but I know that I failed her. After she was there for me so many times, I know she forgives me, present tense, but still, I desperately wish I could have said something useful, or perhaps not said anything at all. When people we love are suffering, we want to make it better, but sometimes, often in fact, you can't make it better. I'm reminded of something my supervisor said to me when I was a student chaplain. Don't just do something. Stand there. Old Lang Syne was a popular song during World War I. Versions of it were sung in the trenches, not just by British soldiers, but by the French and German and Austrian ones as well. And the song even played a small role in one of the strangest and most beautiful moments in world history, the Christmas Truce of 1914. On Christmas Eve that year, along part of the war's western front in Belgium, around 100,000 British and German troops emerged from their trenches and met each other in the so-called no-man's land between front lines. 19-year-old Henry Williamson wrote his mother, Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands on the ground between the trenches and exchanged sovereigns. Marvellous, isn't it? A German soldier remembered that a British soldier brought a soccer ball from the trenches and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvellously wonderful, yet how strange it was. Elsewhere on the front, Captain Sir Edward Hulse recalled a Christmas sing-along that ended up with all Lang Syne, which we all, English, Scots, Irish, Prussians, Rutenbergers, etc. joined in. It was absolutely astounding, and if I had seen it in a cinematographic film, I should have sworn that it was faked. Hulse, who was 25 years old at the time, 
would be killed on the Western Front less than four months later. At least 17 million people would die as a direct result of the war, more than half the current population of Canada. By Christmas 1916, soldiers didn't want truces. The devastating losses of the war and the growing use of poison gas had embittered the combatants. But many also had no idea why they were fighting and dying for tiny patches of ground so far from home. In the British trenches, the soldiers began to sing the tune of Old Lang Syne with different words. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. Here was a world without wise, where life was meaningless all the way down. Modernity had come to war, and to the rest of life. The art critic Robert Hughes once referred to the peculiarly modernist hell of repetition and the trenches of World War I were hell indeed. Although she was a playful and optimistic writer, Amy was not deluded about the nature of suffering or about its centrality in human life. Her work, whether picture book or memoir, always finds a way to acknowledge misery without giving into it. One of the last lines she ever wrote was, Death may be knocking on my door, but I'm not getting out of this glorious bath to answer it. In her public appearances, Amy would sometimes use that recursive lament of British soldiers and transform it without ever changing the tune or the words. She would ask an audience to sing that song with her. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. And although it's a profoundly nihilistic song written about the modernistic hell of repetition, Singing this song with Amy, I could always see the hope in it. It became a statement that we are here, meaning that we are here together, not alone. And it's also a statement that we are, that we exist. And it's a statement that we are here, that a series of astonishing unlikelihoods has made us possible and here possible. We might never know why we are here, but we can still proclaim in hope that we are here. I don't think such hope is foolish or idealistic or misguided. We live in hope that life will get better and more importantly, that it will go on, that love will survive even though we will not. And between now and then, we're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. I give Old Lang Syne five stars. <laughs>